Well, good morning and welcome one more time to Encounter Church. My name is Dirk. I'm the preaching pastor here at Encounter. We're so glad that you're with us today. We're continuing this series called Brave. It's part two. It's a six-part series, so make sure to stick with us throughout the whole thing. If you, if you missed out on last week when we kicked off the series, <clears throat> it's a pretty simple idea. We're, we're taking a look at what it takes to become brave and what it takes to have this godly kind of courage that we see exemplified in so many places in the Bible. And we're doing that by looking at the story of Daniel. Because Daniel is one of the most brave, one of the most courageous people that I can think of in the Bible. And his story is really, really incredible. And most of us, especially if you grew up in church, you know Daniel because you probably went to Sunday school with a little flannel graph and you got like little Daniel and Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Awesome. We're going to work on that enthusiasm by the end of the message. At least I will. Daniel, and you could think of his last name as, and the lion's den, because they go that well together all the time. But what we're going to do in this series isn't going to skip over that story. That's an incredible one, but that's Daniel chapter 6. That's a little while from now. What we want to know is what are all the things that in his life that led up to the place where Daniel could so courageously and so bravely allow himself to be thrown into his lion's den? I mean, we're going to take a look. Daniel chapter 1, last week, when we kicked this thing off, remember, we said Daniel's a guy. He didn't grow up in Babylon. He didn't grow up under King Nebuchadnezzar. He grew up in Jerusalem. He's a good Jewish kid, a good godly kid. And then his city was taken over. His city was destroyed. And he was dragged off, carted off into exile and found himself in the capital city of Babylon, really, truly against his will. And when he got there, he had this awesome spread in front of us of all the king's food and all the king's drink. And he said, I'm not going to defile myself with all those things because I think either maybe it's not kosher or it's, not, or it's, not, it's been uh, food sacrificed to idols. So I'm not going to drink or I'm not going to eat any of that stuff. And so we saw that Daniel resolved to eat vegetables and to drink water. He resolved. He drew a line in the sand, at least with his, with his meal plan to honor God. And we said, if you don't get, if you don't draw that line in the sand, if you don't resolve or make that decision to follow after God in some area of your life, then you never get to see the now God part of the story. If you never draw that line or if you never begin resisting temptation, you never get to see God show up later on. Well, now we're going to go to that place where we expect God to show up. But I just want to be honest, and I just want to be real and ask the question, what if God doesn't show up? Because I read through those cards, and I sat down and had coffee with many of you. And I know the story is often the case that you're still waiting and hoping and praying for God to show up. And I want to ask the question, what if you study all week long and what if you pour your heart and your soul and you ask all your friends to pray for this exam that's coming up and you get it back and you fail? What if God doesn't show up? What if that, that, that dream that you had ever since you were a little kid when you dressed your kid brother up in a little suit and you walked down the aisle with him to play wedding and the, the, the dream that you had of getting married and live happily ever after turns into a nightmare? As marriage isn't what you thought that it was, and you think that you've made a big, you think you made one of the hugest mistakes of your life, and there's no coming back from it, and you're still waiting, and you're still hoping, and you're still praying for God to show up. 
I want to ask that question about when you go into work and you think that you found the perfect job with the perfect people and perfect coworkers, and yes, even the perfect boss, if you can believe it. And then you hear something about downsizing and realizing that really they're just downsizing you and your role there. And you're hoping and you're praying and you're wishing that God would just show up. I think Daniel needs God to show up too. As we get into Daniel chapter 2 and ask that question, what do you do when you wait for God to show up? I'm going to set up the story for you before we read it in just a moment. There's Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. You can start finding Daniel 2. The words are also going to be on the screen behind me, smartphone-friendly church, so you can look it up that way as well. But uh, Daniel chapter 2 picks up, and a little time has elapsed since we met Daniel. He just got to Babylon last week when we saw. Now we fast forward. He's been there for maybe three years. He was part of a program that would teach and kind of train him to become one of the, one of the nobles in Babylon. And that three-year program has concluded. He's a graduate. And so we pick him up in the story, and the king, Nebuchadnezzar, his boss's boss's boss, is having a recurring dream at night. You know, it's, it's the strangest thing. It starts off nice. It starts off pleasant at first. And then as the night goes on, something happens in the dream, and it turns into a nightmare. And he wakes up in a cold sweat. And he kind of goes through the day kind of wondering, what in the world is his dream turned nightmare all about? What could it possibly mean? And then he goes to bed at night, and the whole cycle is just again and again and again and again. And so he decides it must mean something. So he calls all of his wise men, all of his magi. If we could just hang on to some of that language, that'd be great. And he calls all of his magicians and, and all of his enchanters. And he calls everybody together. And he says to them, I need you I need all of you to interpret my dream, something that you've done for me countless times. And they say, absolutely, king. What was your dream that you need interpreted? And Daniel, I'm sorry, and then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, turns back to the magi and the enchanter and the wise men. And he says, here's the thing. I, I've always told you my dreams, and you've always told me what they've meant. And it's always been kind of vague and uncertain, and I never really know if you're telling me the truth or if you're telling me what I want to hear. So as a way to ensure that I know that I can trust you, wise men, magi, enchanters, and the like, the way that I can trust you is that you are going to tell me what my dream was. And then when you've told me what dream I keep having, then you're going to tell me what your interpretation of that dream is, and I'll believe you. And the magi look back at the king, and they're like, you've got to be kidding me. Nobody in all the land has ever been able to tell a king what his dream was. And then make the interpretation of it. In fact, king, we've looked through the historical records. Never has there anybody who has sat on your throne on that piece of furniture and has asked people in our place to tell them what the dream was and the interpretation to go along with it. King, that's unreasonable. And the king does the most unreasonable thing he can do because he's King Nebuchadnezzar and he declares a decree that all of the wise men and all of the magi and all of the enchanters are going to be scooped up and arrested because later on they'll be executed for treason because he believes they've been lying to him all these years. Now, in the story, Daniel, as it turns out, is one of those magi, is one of those wise men, is one of those enchanters. 
if you can believe it. Daniel is one of these guys that gets scooped up along with everybody else and arrested. And he asked, what in the world am I arrested for? Why am I going to lose my head? I didn't even do anything. And they kind of explain, well, you know, it's because nobody could tell the king what his dream was, let alone the interpretation of it. And so Daniel asks the guard to ask the king, can I get an audience with the king? Can I have a shot at this? King Nebuchadnezzar, against all odds, says, sure, you come and you can have a chance to meet me face to face and tell me what my dream is. But first, Daniel goes to his friends, you know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and says, guys, I need you to pray for me because I have the meeting of my life in the morning. I have, in fact, a meeting with the king of all of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And in fact, I don't have just the meeting of my life. I have the meeting of your life as well, because because you've just been arrested and you are going to lose your heads along with me tomorrow if I get this dream wrong. So I need you to pray for me and the king as I go into his office, his chambers. Now, as a total side note, I just love, I love how the story of Daniel breaks in to the history of the world. I love how the story of the Bible breaks in to the story of the history of humanity. So you can read all about Babylon. You can read all about Nebuchadnezzar and so many other places. And I love how we have a, we have a sacred text. We have a story from God that doesn't shy away from world events and world histories, but it actually breaks into them. And I just think that's super cool. And I think that we need to hear that because I think God is also breaking in to our stories and we'll save that for another time. Daniel gets to before the king and the king asked him, okay, Daniel, here's your shot. Do you know what the dream turned nightmare that I keep having is all about? And Daniel starts off in chapter two, verse 27. And it says, Daniel replied, No, no, no. I mean, I just can't believe that Daniel, he would would do all this and come all this way and go before the king. And when the king asked him, do you know what the dream that I keep having is all about? And he says, no, you don't say no to Nebuchadnezzar. You don't say no to the king of Babylon. You make something up and hope for the best. You don't say no to a guy like that. But Daniel isn't your average kind of guy. Daniel replied no, and we'll keep going here. He replies, no wise man, enchanter, magician, definer can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But, and this will preach, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. Now, I had to be in suspense when I was reading it earlier this week, so you have to be in suspense while I unpack that just for a moment. Because what he is doing, I think, is really important in a strategic sense, in a sense that he lacks all strategy whatsoever. (laughs) See, what he is doing, he's backing himself into a corner and doubling down on it. Like, it doesn't make any sense. But, like, that's, that's the story of Daniel, right? As a side of most of us, most of us, when we kind of, like, get spiritual, get religious with God, we tend to try to back God into a corner as best we possibly can, right? Like, we'll, we'll do something like, you know, we'll take on and buy a boat or buy a house or something like that and be like, I, can't, I don't know how I'm going to make the payments, but, like, God, you're faithful, right? Like, you'll show up, right? And God's like, what are you talking about? Like, I never promised that. Like, read my book again. Like, that's, come on. 
Most of us, we try to back God into a corner. But Daniel, no, no, no. He backs himself into a corner. He backs himself into a corner by actually saying, okay, if I get the dream right, then I don't want the accolades. I don't want the fame. I don't want the prize money, whatever it is. I want God to get all of that. And he backs himself further into a corner by saying, but if I get it wrong, you think Nebuchadnezzar is going to hold God responsible? Absolutely not. Nebuchadnezzar is going to hold Daniel responsible. It's going to be Daniel's head that rolls after all of this. So it doesn't make any sense, but Daniel nevertheless doubles down on God showing up. Now, here's the dream that he has. He's kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. Did your dream go something like this? Your majesty looked, and there before you, stood a large statue. I want you to picture this in your mind. An enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver. Its belly and thighs of bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron, partly of baked clay. Now, if you need to, you can like Google search Daniel chapter 2, click on images, and you'll get all kinds of cheesy images with terrible theology attached to them. Uh, but I would encourage you just, just to imagine it, right? Because the Bible was given to us a, apart from its current form without the red letters and maps in the back. And so the idea is just picture what this statue could look like, right? Gold, silver, bronze, right? Iron feet, iron mixed with clay, And like, here it is, right? And that's the dream part of it. Because Nebuchadnezzar is looking at this thing, gold head, probably with like like a curly beard or something like that. I just kind of imagine the times. I've seen pictures like that. That's all right. And then all of a sudden, like a turning point in the dream as the dream flips into a nightmare. And the next line, verse 34, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but, but not by human hands. And and the rock, it struck the statue on its feet of iron, and clay smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff, like dust on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock... But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. O King Nebuchadnezzar, did your dream go something like that? And at this point, Daniel kind of walks over to the throne and he like scoops Nebuchadnezzar's chin up off the crown. I'm speculating, but he nails it, right? He got it exactly right with all the vivid detail, everything in it. And Nebuchadnezzar is going, how? How in the world did you, how did you know? And Daniel says, right? I told you, I don't know. I don't have a clue, but I serve a God who does. I serve the God who, and we keep calling him the, the revealer of mysteries, a revealer of mysteries. In fact, that's probably something that a few people here, including myself, need to hear, that God is a revealer of mysteries. You know, there's a story in, uh, in Mark chapter 
two, I believe, of, uh, about some friends who gather up one of their friends who's paralyzed, that can't walk, and they, they have him lie on a mat, and they bring him before Jesus, and they say, you know, Jesus, he can't walk. And Jesus looks at him, and he does something, he does something unexpected. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And his friends are like, cool, we didn't come here to have his sins forgiven. <laughs> We brought him here because he can't walk. Can you help us out with that bit, right? But, but while that's going on, there's some religious, hyper-religious types, Pharisees, leaders of the church, in fact, off to the side. And they're like looking at this thing. And they, they don't say anything, but they think, or at least a couple, one or two, thinks, who, who is this guy? And why is he forgiving sins? Who has the authority to forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus says, you there, and calls them out. And, and then like builds a whole sermon and at whatever point, the guy, long story short, he ends up getting healed anyway and walked with his sins forgiven and his feet working. But that's like the, the side of the thing. The point of that story is like Jesus, when, he's, when God is revealed to us in Jesus, in the gospel of Mark, he's revealed to us as somebody who can like cut through just what somebody is saying and, and he can see not only what they're, what they're thinking, but also like that deep part in their heart about where they're coming from. And he sees those Pharisees for who they were. And I want to just say, if that, doesn't re- if that doesn't resonate as a bit intimidating and terrifying to you, like, let's just come back and revisit that story. But, but at the same time, this revealer of mysteries kind of God, one of my favorite, favorite definitions of, of gospel, of good news that, that Jesus offered, that God offers every single one of us today, One of my favorite definitions of gospel is someone, is that you and I are both and simultaneously fully known and fully loved. I mean, the the, the weight encapsulated into that, that that God is the revealer of mysteries. He knows not only your dreams, but he knows what's lurking deep down into your soul, the dark parts particularly. He fully knows you. Because because if, if we find ourselves fully loved, but not known, like you know that person, like, you know who they are, that person in your life who just loves you and dotes on you and whatever, but they don't even, they don't know you. And so it becomes this artificial, this, this shallow kind of love because they, they, they love you, but they don't know you. But, but at the same time, you just consider the possibility that there is another human being on this planet who fully knows you, all of you, even the dark corridors of your heart, and does not love you, but rejects you. That's a nightmare. That's terrifying. But the proposition of a God who both fully knows you and fully loves you just the same, that's good news. That's gospel. And now Daniel is standing before Nebuchadnezzar, the king in ancient times. And essentially, he's foreshadowing the way to that gospel, to that good news. And he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, you are fully known. And if you can believe it, at the same time, fully loved by God. Nebuchadnezzar takes some of this in kind of gets his thoughts together and asks, well, what then does the dream mean? 
And Daniel goes on and he fills out part of the dream. And this is where courage comes in. This is where this chapter fits nicely into the series called Brave. Because it's easy to deliver good news. It takes courage and bravery to deliver news like this. Oh, dear King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the head on that great, magnificent, astounding, awesome statue is made out of gold. And that gold head with the curly beard on it is you. And Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, absolutely. You see, as a side note, like, um, there's no self-esteem issues with kings in the ancient world. So when Daniel says, the gold statue on the top of the rest of the, you know, the head, that's you. And he's like, oh, of course, I'm the MVP of my own team. Everybody knows that. And then he fills out the rest of the statue. And he says the rest of the statue is subsequent kingdoms in the world, right? There's a silver one, and there's a bronze one, and there's an iron one, and there's like this clay one, and it kind of goes down the list. And, and all have diminishing value, which the king also loves to hear. Not only am I the curly bearded gold head, of the whole thing, but also every subsequent kingdom is going to have less and less value attached to it. Nobody will ever match me. And that's the dream, right? That I am the curly bearded head of like world history. And then a rock comes, right? Like you got the diminishing value and you get down to the bottom, the feet, and at least you still have clay that's useful for something. But this un uncut rock at least not cut by human hands, starts flying at the statue. And it doesn't strike the head, it doesn't strike the chest or the belly, the torso, the legs, but it strikes the feet of that mixture of clay and iron. And it actually crumbles the feet, which actually then crumbles. And you see this whole statue like, like collapsing in this pile of dust, of rubble. And then the wind comes because it's summertime, right? And it just blows the dust away. And all of that, the kingdoms of the ancient world are all forgotten in light of the rock that stays, the rock that starts growing now, the rock that grows to the point of becoming almost like a mountain, and the rock doesn't even stop growing at, at mountain proportions. The rock grows until, until it, it fills the entire earth. And then Nebuchadnezzar like, sits back with this, and he's saying, so you're essentially telling me that I am running probably the most valuable or in some way, shape, or form, the best kingdom in the ancient world that the world has ever seen, and maybe even according to this dream, that the world will ever see. Yeah, that's, it's kind of it, almost. Yeah, yeah, but, but then the dream becomes a nightmare in that a rock is going to come and, and like crash all of these kingdoms. And so even the most valuable one, even the best curly bearded one in the whole world is going to be reduced to dust and be blown away. And so what you're telling me is that even though I've come to this level of prestige or this level in my career or this level in marriage or this level in whatever, what you're telling me is that all of this is going to be reduced to rubble and will be but a footnote in another story that's going to be told. And it isn't actually about me. It's about that other kingdom, that rock that came from nowhere that filled the whole earth. Is that right? Am I going to aspire to be a footnote in some greater story? This is the courage. And Daniel says, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't want to be the one to tell you that, but 
That's what God told me to tell you. And the king takes all of this in for just a moment. And he asks himself a question that I think would be worth asking for each one of us today. And he essentially asks, how am I going to run my kingdom in light of the fact that there's a kingdom coming that will never end and never pass away and never diminish in any way? And in the next line, in verse 46, the king takes this in, and King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate, face down, arms spread apart, before Daniel. And he paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And the king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and, there it is again, the revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. Question is going to be to Nebuchadnezzar, how am I going to run my kingdom in light of the kingdom that will never pass away and never diminish for all of time? And he responds by laying down, face down, arms spread apart before Daniel and saying, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings. I mean, it's this powerful powerful point in the story because maybe you've taken world history and maybe you know about the empire of Babylonia, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar himself. And you know, Maybe you don't remember that part of the story because Nebuchadnezzar is just about to come back on that promise. And that happens two, three more times just to keep it interesting and so we can make it a six-part series. He's going back and forth, back and forth, and it gets really tight for Daniel particularly. But at least for this moment, we see, we see Nebuchadnezzar saying and answering that question, how am I going to run my kingdom in light of the kingdom that never, ever diminishes and never, ever goes away? And he says, I have no recourse but to take my whole self and my whole kingdom and lay it before the kingdom that actually does matter and make a difference. Now, application time, because some of you are thinking emperor, ancient world, dreams, kingdoms, rocks, mountains, whole earth, Cool story, bro, but I'm not like running a kingdom over here. Like I'm not, I'm not a curly bearded king with a big empire behind me. No, maybe you don't have an empire like Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar was in charge of, but you and I, we all still have that question that's posed to us in a way every single day and every single week to week and month to month and year to year. We have that question. How are you going to run your kingdom in light of the kingdom that never fades and never diminishes and never goes away? Because each one of us, we have a certain level of influence over the people around us. Each one of us, we have a certain amount of resources at our disposal that we can choose to serve ourselves or we can choose to serve the one who actually matters and will never diminish and never go away. Each one of us, we have a certain amount of authority. We have a certain amount of time. We all have something, resources within our disposal, a singular kingdom that we are all operating. And imagine Daniel standing before you and asking the question he asked to the king of kings at that time, in that day, Nebuchadnezzar, and says, how are you going to run your kingdom in light of the kingdom that never, ever fades and never, ever goes away? There's a lot that has been made about this story and this dream. And a lot of people kind of take this and what the elements is all about, and they start to put on layers and say, okay, it's because of this. Now I know because this is that and this is that. Now I know. 
I know exactly how to invest and spend my time and uh, pursue my career, like whatever. In light of the kingdom, the rock that's coming, it never fades away. Get ready, it's coming kind of thing. But here's what I'd like to do. As we get into the interp- further interpretation of the dream itself, what I want to do is not look past the Bible. Can we do that? Can we just like, look at the story and the dream and not look beyond what God has revealed to us in the way that he has said, I have spoken and inspired the way? Can we, can we look at this dream in a way that doesn't look outside of the Bible? And we start to look at those kingdoms and we're like, wait, wait, wait a second. I mean, this isn't actually as hard as we think it is. Like, we don't have to go to current events. We don't have to go to the future crystal ball. We don't have to go to anything else because it's right here in the story of God that God is telling in the Bible. He said the king, the kingdom that is made out of gold, the curly bearded head, is you, Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel told us that in Daniel chapter 2. The subsequent kingdoms of the ancient world, of the silver and the bronze and the iron and the clay, you just take an introduction to world history class and you start to see like the kingdoms that sat on the throne that Nebuchadnezzar is now sitting on or ruling over the thrones that Nebuchadnezzar now sits on. And you start to see after the Babylonians, it was the Persians. And after the Persians, it was the Greeks. And after the Greeks, for just a hot sec, it was the Gauls who took over Rome and, and like ruled from there. But then Rome came back with a vengeance and actually took over what was known as the ancient world and a mixture of all kinds of cultures and places. And it was at that point in world history that God broke in again. This time... In Luke chapter 2, a chapter of the Bible that most of us reserve for Christmas time, Christmas time only, when God is telling his story, we know it as the Bible, but also he uses it in a way to break into the history of the world in all historical books and texts, religious or not. In Luke chapter 2 starts off with, in those days, the king that was sitting on the throne wasn't Nero or Cyrus. It wasn't... In those days, Caesar was his name and title. Caesar Augustus was sitting on the throne. And Caesar, the Roman Empire, ordered a census to be taken of the whole Roman world. All the mixtures of all people because I got to know who I'm ruling over. And at that point in world history, a rock started tumbling. Because it was in that kingdom of the ancient world that God said, it's time. And he sent his son from heaven to earth to break in to the kingdoms of this world and to establish a kingdom that would never ever fade and that would never ever go away and that would never ever diminish in any possible way. It was in the, Holy, it was, it was in the Roman Empire that the holy God of ours broke into history being born as an infant, not cut by human hands or born of a husband's will as we're told in the Gospels, but he broke in as a baby born from from heaven, through Mary, to save the people from their sins. And that kingdom that he would establish would never, ever diminish and never, ever go away. And in fact, whether his name is Nero or Augustus or Cyrus or Nebuchadnezzar, Every emperor and every leader and every CEO and every person of influence in this world will be known as a footnote in time compared to Jesus Christ who was born at that time, the rock that would never diminish. Everybody would be known only in regards to how did they spend down their kingdom in light of the kingdom that would never ever fade and ever go away. 
It's, a, it's an incredible story. <laughs> and it's all tightly packed right there in Scripture. And so I just want to ask you like one more time, how are you, you going to spend your kingdom, going to run your kingdom in light of the kingdom that never fades and never, grow, no, never go away? Because the kingdom of God that was started in this world is growing and it will not retreat and it will not lose ground and it will fill the whole world. And people like Nebuchadnezzar may come up and tell you that the kingdom is a nation with borders that needed to be protected and armies that needed to be raised. But Jesus said, no, my kingdom is not like that. It's not of this world. And my kingdom is not of one people or one class or one ethnicity, but it is of all classes and all peoples and all ethnicities. And my kingdom that I'm talking about, the kingdom of heaven that we know it as, it isn't a philosophy of, of ideas to be adhered to or a way of thinking. My, my kingdom is not an ethic whereby if we serve and live out the Ten Commandments perfectly, someday we can enter it. No, no. My kingdom is not a, a, simply a religion where if I go through these certain religious uh, or rituals where I pull this lever or attend that Bible study or pray, pray this prayer, that I can pull the levers of God's heart and get out what I want. No, no, no. My kingdom is not like that. My kingdom is nothing short than the miracle of a changed heart and a personal relationship through my son, Jesus Christ. That is the kingdom of God. It is a heart turned toward God, and it's growing, and it will not back down. And it will not diminish. And it will grow until it fills the entire world. That's the kingdom that we all serve and will all fully serve someday. The kingdom of God that lives. In Nebuchadnezzar, at least for a moment, he got that. He got what it was about. I hope that we will too this week. Now the sermon is over. But the story continues. There's an epilogue. After the story, verse 48, the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. And he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all it's wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. As hard as you can to believe it, stick around for the series, but those wise men and magi and enchanters will turn their backs on David. He saved their lives, and they will turn their backs on him, throw him under the bus, and almost get him killed. But that doesn't mean they didn't believe him. They believed him enough to remember that dream and to remember its interpretation. They believed him enough to know that there is a kingdom coming that will never fade away. And they paid attention. And they told their successors about the dream and its interpretation. And they told their successors and those successors and those and those. For generations, for hundreds and hundreds of years, they never forgot and they never stopped watching. Until one day when they saw Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom turn over into the Persians, check, and then turn over 
and to the Greeks, and then the Gauls, and then the Romans, and then the Romans came on scene. And when, when there, was a, there was a new emperor sitting on the throne, they really started paying attention, and they really started watching. And by this time, they were, they were almost completely forgotten in history. There weren't too many of them left at all, but they never stopped paying attention. They never stopped watching out for the king, the rock, who would come. And when that king did come, and we hear about it in Luke chapter 2, when the king did come, in Matthew 2 it tells us, that those wise men and those magi, they came from the east and they brought gifts and presented them to this kid, this child of gold, of frankincense and myrrh because, friends, that's what you give a king. That's how you honor a king with your life and your gifts, a king whose kingdom will never pass away and will never diminish and whose, whose rock will grow as the cornerstone that the builders rejected will grow and grow until it's someday called a mountain. And that mountain fills the whole earth. That's the God, the king, the kingdom that we live into here today. Amen? We need to hear that, friends, because some of you are waiting for God to show up. And you're wondering, failing the test or failing the marriage or failing the career or failing the family, whatever it is, when is God going to show up? And you need to hear first and foremost about the king whose kingdom does not retreat and will not diminish. You need to know, friends, you need to know that that mountain won't move. As the psalmist says, even though the ground beneath you shakes, even though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, the mountain that is our Lord will not move. You need to know that beyond the failed marriage, that beyond the lost job, that beyond the moral failure, there's a mountain that doesn't move and a kingdom that will not move away from you and will not diminish and will not retreat on you. The mountain won't move. And for that message, they remembered, but they sold him out. And I want to know Daniel. Daniel, you saved their lives by interpreting the dream for the king. And how they repay you is they hate you so much that they almost get you killed. Daniel, how can you, how can you save someone who hates you that much? And the answer, friends, he never took his eyes off the stone. Daniel, he never looked away from the rock that is his help. He never lost focus of the mountain that is growing. Though the earth shakes, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. I never stopped looking at that mountain for my refuge and my hope, Daniel says. He never took his eyes off the stone. He never lost focus of the rock that's his hope. And he was waiting, just waiting for Jesus Christ. I want that so bad. I want that kind of bravery, that kind of courage that someday if I'm faced with the possibility of death, all of us, when we are faced with death, 
I want to look back. And I don't want to take my eyes off the stone. I don't want to lose focus of the rock. I don't want to miss out on the mountain of God that is my hope and my safe refuge. And I want that for you too. Let's stand together. Let's sing. Let's sing to the God of our hope. Let's sing to the great God, the God of the mountain that will not move. Our gracious God, we need your hope. We need your vision. We need you, Lord, to fill up our hearts and our lives so that, so that we have the courage, that we have the bravery to look beyond a shaky footing to a mountain that doesn't move. God, we need you to help us to not take our eyes off the rock. God, we need you to go before us this week to guide us. We need you to go behind us to protect us. God, we need you to go beside us to befriend us, beneath us to support us, and above us to watch over us. God, we need you. And we expect you to show up this week. Holy Spirit, help us to know when we do. Amen.